Good morning. So the kids were great. Yes, that was exciting. Uh, just so you know, if, you, if, if you're here for the first time and you're wondering, what, what, what do we do with those coats? Those coats do go somewhere. We're not, we don't store them for next year. We actually give them to a Path of Life Ministry. It's a ministry among the homeless in Riverside. So they'll go to good use. Uh, so Palm Sunday, as Tom mentioned, is the beginning of Holy Week. The week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and to the resurrection. It's the, it's the day that Jesus triumphal, tr- help me, triumphantly, that's good enough, entered into Jerusalem. It takes place five days uh, before Jesus is crucified on Good Friday and one week uh, before his resurrection on Easter Sunday. So both this week and next, uh, we're going to take a break from our series, if you've been with us, our series in Psalm 86. Instead, we'll be focusing on the, the events of this week, of Holy Week. But even though we're taking a break from Psalm 86, we're not taking a break from the main theme of that series, which is, anyone? Glory, I hear glory in beholding, that's right, beholding the glory of God. In Psalm 86... We've, it's a prayer of David, and David is uh, praying, and he's uh, declaring the glory of God. He's declaring the greatness of God. And we've been seeing, pondering, meditating on these glorious attributes of God found in Psalm 86. Why? Because it's when we behold God's glory, when we see Him for who He is, when we see Him for what He does, it's then that we're drawn to Him that we draw near to Him, and we experience His glorious uh, transforming power and presence in our lives. And so today, as we examine Jesus' triumphal entry, I want us to behold the glory of God as seen in Jesus Christ. My purpose this morning, as always really, is by preaching the Word of God to help us behold the glory of Jesus Christ in such a way that we're motivated, that we're moved, that God, uh, by His Spirit, draws us to come to Him. For some, today may be the first time you'd come to Jesus. For others, today may be a coming back to Jesus. And for many, maybe today is an opportunity to grow, to grow in your conviction, to come to Jesus on a regular basis, on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis, to enter into real relationship with Him. So would you pray with me that today's message will draw us, each and every one of us, no matter who we are, where we're coming from, it would draw us closer to Jesus Christ. Lord God, I pray that as Your Word goes forth, Lord, I pray it would be your word and not my word. I pray that anything of me would just be uh, blocked out. Lord, and I pray that your word would be preached today. Lord, and I pray that word would, would reach into our hearts and by the power of your spirit would convict us, would draw us. Not to, not to change ourselves, not to be better people but to draw us to you, that you might transform us, that you might make us into the people that you want us to be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Today we're going to behold the glory of Jesus Christ as he uh, rides in, as he rides into Jerusalem on that 
bull, that, that donkey on that first Palm Sunday. But before we do that, we need to understand something. We need to understand the misconception of Palm Sunday. So, so what is a misconception? A misconception is when you believe something to be true, but it's actually not true. For example, when I was in high school, I was, uh, for the most part, a good Christian kid. I wasn't perfect, but I didn't smoke or drink, except once or twice, sorry. And I definitely didn't do drugs. I went to church most every Sunday. And one night, I went over to my friend Mark's house for the first time. We were both on the football team, and our coach had arranged for the team uh, to get together and have a party that evening, and I was picking Mark up. So I went to the door, and I knocked, and his mom came, and she answered. I asked her if Mark was ready to go, and she looked at me, and she said, can you, can you just wait here for a minute? And I waited for several minutes. I actually kind of heard some talking in, inside the house, and when Mark finally came to the door, he said his parents wouldn't let him go to the party with me. I asked him why. Anyone care to guess what he said? Why his parents wouldn't let him go with me? That's what they thought. Why did they think that? They'd never met me the first time they ever saw me. My tats, that's... <laughs> close, close my reputation. What, what are you saying? Because they, thought, <laughs> because they thought I must be into drugs because, believe it or not, I had long flowing hair. <laughs> it's, tr- it's a true story. <laughs> they believed that guys with long hair were usually into drugs. They weren't willing to risk it. But at least in my case, they were wrong. They had a misconception about me based on the length of my hair. What they believed about me wasn't true. In fact, I was trying to work into inviting Mark to come with me to church. So it was, in some ways, the, the opposite. Now, what was the misconception of Palm Sunday? What did the crowd and even the disciples... So there's a crowd there, just the picture. There's a crowd. People have heard of Jesus. He has a reputation. He's done miracles. He's done teaching. So there's... Uh, people that are sort of following him in a distance, the crowd, and then there are his disciples. So, so what, did, uh, what did the crowd and the disciples believe about Jesus that wasn't true? When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the crowd shouted, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is he who, can, who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And Hosanna, so we've seen, anybody know what Hosanna means? save. Good. I'm glad. Hosanna is an exclamation of adoration, meaning, oh, save. And son of David is a reference to the promised Messiah or deliverer, someone who would be a descendant of King David and who would deliver, who would save his people and establish a kingdom that would continue forever. So the people are cheering and they're shouting, waving palm branches, laying their cloaks uh, for Jesus, I mean, they believed in, in the, there was something special about Jesus because they're willing to let him walk on their cloaks, their coats, if you will. Why? Because they had reason to believe that David, uh, that, that, David that, that Jesus was the Davidic Messiah. 
They had seen his ministry, his teaching, his miracles. And that he was coming to establish a kingdom. That he was coming to bring salvation. So what was the misconception? Was Jesus the Messiah? Yes. They were right. Jesus was the Davidic Messiah, a descendant, a son of King David, who who would establish a kingdom and who would bring salvation. But the crowd was also wrong. They had a misconception about the kind of kingdom Jesus would establish. They believed Jesus was coming to restore the earthly kingdom of Israel for the Jews. So at this point in, in history, Palestine is ruled by the Romans. And so they have their governors, their leaders, and so the Jews have to follow what the Romans say. They they don't have their own kingdom. They don't have their own freedom. So they believe Jesus is coming to restore the kingdom of Israel to the times of David, to the times of Solomon. But instead, Jesus is coming to establish a heavenly kingdom. A heavenly kingdom not just for Jews, but for all who would trust in Him, Jews and Gentiles. And they had a misconception about the salvation Jesus was bringing. They believed he would defeat their enemies, the Romans. That he would save them from Roman rule. But instead, Jesus was coming to save them from their sin. Now, how do we know that the crowds and the disciples shared this misconception? Because in only a few short days, when Jesus was arrested And it became clear that he was not going to save them from Rome. That he was not going to restore the kingdom of Israel. And his disciples deserted him. Some of his disciples denied him. And some of the same people who shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on Palm Sunday, would shout, crucify him, crucify him on Good Friday. Five days. The crowd and the disciples had a misconception about who Jesus was. They were partly right, but they didn't fully understand why Jesus had come. They didn't didn't know the real reason he was entering Jerusalem. And when they found out that he wasn't going to do what they wanted, what they expected, they quickly turned on him. Some turned away and some fully turned on him. Crucify him. Crucify him. And before we rush to judgment, don't we often do the same thing? Don't we have misconceptions about Jesus, about God? And don't those misconceptions lead to wrong expectations? And when God doesn't meet those wrong expectations, aren't we prone to turn away from or even turn on Him? For example, we rightly believe, we rightly believe it's true that God is love, right? If you were here last week, that was the the message. God is love. But our misconception is that because God is love, He will never let quote-unquote bad things happen to us. And therefore, when bad things, things we consider bad, happen to us, we often turn on Him, turn away from Him. We say, or at least we think, things like, God, if You really loved me, You wouldn't allow this tragedy. You wouldn't allow this sickness this financial problem, this relationship problem, etc. And when we do that, when God doesn't meet our expectations and we turn on Him, we reveal our lack of understanding of who God is. We really don't know Him for who He is. We reveal our lack of trust in Him. 
my friend uh, Mark's mom had a misconception about me that led her not to trust me. And that really wasn't a big deal. Mark just drove himself to the team party. But when we have misconceptions about God and those misconceptions lead us not to trust in Him, that's a very big deal. It's the biggest deal. We need to trust that even though God does not always or even often maybe follow the script we've written for our lives, we know, He knows exactly what He's doing. However, He has a much different set of priorities than we do. As the prophet Isaiah writes, and as we sang about this morning, that great song that Chad wrote for us, I believe. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as heavens, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We don't think and we don't act the way God does. We don't share His uh, priorities. Our thoughts and ways tend to prioritize the earthly and the temporal. While God's thoughts, God's ways prioritize the heavenly and the eternal. That doesn't mean God ignores the earthly and the temporal. It means He's working right now in the earthly, in our temporal, for His heavenly and eternal purposes. He's working to transform us. And because of that, we who live in this earthly temporal uh, uh, space, place, are called over and over again in Scripture to trust in Him. We don't see. We don't get the big picture. He's, he's looking. He, he has, from the beginning to the end, He sees it clearly. And we're just seeing what's going on right here and now. And so the Scripture tells us again and again, trust in Him, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. We're commanded to fully trust in the Lord. And specifically, it's not just trust in the Lord, it's trust in the Lord and don't trust in yourself, in your way of thinking, because His thoughts and His ways are higher, are better than ours. Our thoughts are often filled with misconceptions, but His never are. On Palm Sunday, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, the disciples and the crowd's thoughts are on the restoration of the kingdom of Israel and, and of the salvation uh, from, Roman, for, from the Roman rule for the Jews. But Jesus' thoughts are on the establishment of a new eternal heavenly kingdom and salvation from sin for all who trust in Him. His thoughts are higher. His ways are better. Therefore, the script He's written for our lives is far better than the ones we write ourselves. And God's desire is for, is for Jesus Christ to be at the very center of our story. So let's take a moment with the time we have remaining, and just behold the glory of Christ as He enters Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, allowing God's Word to correct any misconceptions we have about Him so that we today might, no matter who we are, where we're coming from, that we might fully trust in Him and come to Him and allow Him to enter our lives, for He alone is worthy. He alone is glorious. So first, behold... Jesus is God. Maybe the greatest misconception throughout history about Jesus is that He was just a good man, a moral teacher. 
but he wasn't God. This is the misconception that most of the world's religions and even some who call themselves Christians share. They may call him a prophet, even a man sent from God, but he wasn't and he isn't God. However, that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus himself points to his divinity in a number of places in the Gospels. We, I mean, there's whole studies, sermons on how Jesus shows that he's God. I'm just going to point out a few things. I'm going to point it out here and in, in, in his triumphal entry. In John chapter 10, verse 30, maybe one of the most clearest statements he makes, he says, I and the Father are one. Jesus states that he and, and the Father are one being, one entity. Thus, if the Father is God, then Jesus is God. If there is a God, Jesus is God. We also see his claim here in, in, in <clears throat> Jesus' words and his actions in Matthew chapter 21. As Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, before he arrives, this is the, what, what Dina just read for us, he sends two of his disciples into the village of Bethage. And in verses 2 and 3 of Matthew 21, we read his instructions to them. Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with, with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Jesus knew something that, that no one else knew. He ordains where a donkey and a colt will be at a certain time for a certain purpose by his actions here. And, and throughout the Gospels, he demonstrates his divinity. Then he says... If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This title, this word he uses, Lord, in the, in the rest of the book of, the math, of Matthew is only used to refer to God, but Jesus uses it to refer to himself. The language he uses is not uh, just our master needs him, or our teacher needs him, or our rabbi needs them, but the Lord God needs them. By his own words, Jesus claims to be God. So behold the glory of Jesus Christ. As he enters Jerusalem for this final time, he enters not as a a good moral teacher. He enters as the Lord of all creation. He enters as God. And what that means is, uh, he has no misconceptions about what lay before him. He knows the truth. He knows what the disciples and the crowd doesn't. They're expecting him, really, they're literally expecting him to rise up in some way with, with great power, miraculous power from God. Maybe, the, 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 maybe in the same way Moses brought the plagues against Egypt, the, the people are expecting Jesus to bring plagues against Rome with great power and defeat their enemies. But Jesus knows he's five days away from being crucified by these enemies. And yet he, God the Son, doesn't hesitate. He continues on his journey to the cross. Behold the glory of Jesus, who is God come in human flesh. And why did he come? Not, at least at that time, to restore the kingdom of Israel, not to save the Jews from Roman oppression, but to establish a new heavenly eternal kingdom, to bring salvation from from sin's dreadful oppression on humanity, to bring salvation from sin to all who would trust in him. Behold, Jesus is Savior. That's our our second point. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, he comes to save. Zechariah 9.9, 
This is the prophecy of the events told in Matthew. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he. He's righteous. He's sinless. And therefore, he alone can be that perfect sacrifice for our sin. He comes having salvation. He comes bringing salvation. Based on the Old Testament scripture, uh, like Zechariah that we just read and others, the Jewish people believed that one day God would send a Messiah, a deliverer, a savior. And on that first Palm Sunday, we see that, that many believed uh, that that day had come. This is the day. Matthew 21, verses 8 and 9, we read, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So the crowds are shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're actually quoting from Psalm 118, where the psalmist cries, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, as I pointed out earlier, Hosanna is this exclamation of of adoration, meaning, O save, save us, we pray. And Son of David is the reference to the, the promised Messiah deliverer. From the line of David whose kingdom would continue forever. So so the words of the crowds quoting the Psalms shows that they believed that Jesus was their messianic deliverer, their savior. However, they believe Jesus is coming to save them from Roman oppression. No one here, no one in the crowd, not even the disciples were connecting the dots. They didn't understand that the messianic savior, uh, 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 the the messianic savior king of Zechariah chapter 9 was also the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. Speaking of the savior and how he would save, Isaiah writes, long before Jesus enters Jerusalem, long before Jesus is crucified, Isaiah writes, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The crowds didn't understand that the Messiah would save his people from their sin by being smitten by God and afflicted, by being pierced for their transgressions, by being crushed for our iniquities, by having our sin laid upon him. The crowds didn't know what was coming, but Jesus did. He knew he was headed for a sacrificial death on the cross. Don't forget, Holy Week, what we call Holy Week, uh, was was uh, before Holy Week was Holy Week. It was Passover week. Jerusalem at this time uh, was filled with people. That's why there are crowds coming to celebrate God's salvation, the salvation of His people from slavery in Egypt. They're celebrating when the angel of death passed over the homes of those that had been marked by by blood, by those that had blood sprinkled on the the top and the side posts of their entries to their their homes. 
but they don't understand that, that they are welcoming Jesus, as they're welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, they're welcoming their own sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, the glory of Jesus, who is Savior, who by his sacrificial death saves all who trust in him. Now, before we move to our final point, I want to deal with two misconceptions about salvation. First, lots of people believe uh, that there are many ways to be saved. That there are many ways to reach God or heaven or paradise, to have eternal peace. That all religions or no religion at all are equal and valid And all religions teach basically the same thing. That all religions lead basically to the same place. In Thailand, which I lived in for a number of years, uh, which is predominantly Buddhist, they have a saying. Uh, Are are there any Thai speakers here? Oh good, you have no idea. When I say this, if I'm right or wrong, uh, the saying goes like this. And I say it in Thai because it sounds kind of cool. Every religion is the same. Every religion teaches us how to be good. The Thai people, for the most part, believe that every religion is equally valid. That we as Westerners should be Christians. That Westerners should be Christians. That's good for Westerners to be Christians. And they as Thai people should be good Buddhists. To be Thai is to be Buddhists, they would say. And if that's the case, uh, then Jesus is at best just one of many ways to be saved. That Christianity is just one of many good religions. That Jesus is just one of many saviors. But again, that's not what the Word of God teaches. In Luke chapter 19.10, speaking of Himself, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus, who is God, entered our world with a mission and that mission was to seek and to save the lost. Now, now think about what that really means. Let's put some things together here. Think about what Jesus had to do in order to seek and to save the lost. The Apostle Paul says, Jesus Christ, this is, he's writing to the church in Philippi, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on, the cross, on a cross. For Jesus to seek and to save the lost, he had to empty himself. He had to set aside, really, his, his divine power. He was always divine, but he set aside that power and relied fully on the Spirit, the, the Father at work in his life. He had to become a servant. He, the Creator, had to become a created human being. And then he had to, to humble himself by obeying his Father resulting in his sacrificial death on the cross. A death which involved being smitten by God and afflicted, being pierced for our transgression, being crushed for our iniquities, having our sins laid upon him. So the question is, the question is really, why in God's name would Jesus do all of this if there was another way for people to be saved? Why would he come and to seek and save the lost if there are other ways for the lost to be saved? 
In fact, on, on Thursday of Holy Week, the day before he's crucified, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Father, if it's possible, if there's any other way uh, to bring salvation, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to go to the cross. I don't, I don't want to be smitten and afflicted and pierced and crushed. I don't want to have the sins of humanity laid upon me. But as you will, Jesus prays. If there was another way for us to be saved, then Jesus would have never went to the cross. That's why John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Behold, the glory of Jesus Christ, who, who through a great cost to himself provides us with the one and only way to be saved. And how do we take advantage of what Christ has provided? Well, that brings us to, to the second misconception about salvation. Many people and really all, all religion besides biblical Christianity teaches that, that we must in some way earn our own salvation. That we must be good enough for God to save us. That our good works must somehow outweigh our bad. But again, that's, that's not what the Word of God teaches. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And, and this is not of your own doing. And this is not of your own doing. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The salvation that Jesus alone provides is a free gift of God's amazing grace. It's not based on who you are. It's not based on what you do. It's not based on your quote-unquote good works. I don't, I don't know if we even have any of those really before we come to Christ without Christ working in our lives. It's not something we can earn. It's given freely to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's given only to those who stop trusting in themselves, stop trusting in their own abilities, who stop trusting in their good works, and instead trust only in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for their sins. Having faith that your sins have been laid upon Christ, that His death is sufficient, that His sacrifice is complete, because He alone, is the glorious Savior. He alone is your glorious Savior. But He's more than a Savior. Behold, Jesus is King. When, Jesus talk, when, when people talk about Jesus' triumphal entry, this is the point most often made. That Jesus enters Jerusalem as King. That what all the cheering and the coats and the hosannas signify is that the people are welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem as their king. They're accepting him. They're saying, lead us, O king. Deliver us, O king. And Matthew in verse 4 and 5, quoting from Zechariah 9, makes it clear. He writes, this took place, all of the, the hosannas and everything, uh, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, to Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal, the beast of burden. 
Zechariah was prophesying to God's people after they had come back from exile. So, so the, the Jewish people had this kingdom, and then they stopped obeying God. And God brings other countries around them to conquer them, and they go off in, and t- are taken captive, and they're, they're led away into other nations. And now, through prayer, through God's mercy, they're coming back. Some of them are coming back into the land of Israel, into Jerusalem. And Zechariah is prophesying to God's people after they've come back. A remnant, a small number of Israelites have come back to Jerusalem. And, and they're going to rebuild the temple and reestablish the city. And Zechariah is bringing them encouragement. Because in the history of Israel, if you read the book, uh, they'd endured failed king after failed king after failed king. So Zechariah holds out this hope before them, promising a day when God would send his king to them. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Rejoice greatly. Be happy. Shout. Your king is coming to you. And notice, as we've already discussed, the king is righteous. The king brings salvation. And he's also humble. He's not pushy. He comes mounted on a donkey. This is a sign of humility. He's not coming to forcefully take over. He's not coming to lead an uprising. He's not coming to physically conquer. Instead, Zechariah 9.10 says, He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. He speaks peace to the nations. His kingdom extends to the nations. His rule to all people. He's not not just the king of the Jews. I mean, next next week we'll see him crucified and we'll have the, the, the sign they put up there. This is the king of the Jews, but he's not. Just the king of the Jews. He's the king of all. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he has a, uh, and he comes speaking peace. That word peace is the Hebrew shalom. It includes the ideas of completeness, uh, of safety, of welfare, of friendship, of, of tranquility. The message of peace the king brings is the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. It's a message of peace. Shalom between God and humanity. Because Because of the fall, because of that original sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden, because of our continual following after them, our continual sin as human beings, we are not at peace with God. We're in fact in rebellion against God. That's our natural state. We're born sinners. We're born in rebellion against our Creator, against God. And if the king were to come to make war against a rebellious people, that would be completely just. But instead, he comes with a message, an offer of peace. Peace that satisfies the justice of God through the sacrificial death of his son, the king. The king is also the savior. And when we trust in him, When we trust in Jesus Christ, it's through trusting in Jesus Christ we're reconciled to God. We enter into a relationship with God. 
We have peace and completeness and safety and welfare and friendship and tranquility with God. The scripture calls Abraham a friend of God, but each and every one of us can be a friend of God because he offers us peace. He brings shalom to the nations. It says his rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. He comes with a message of peace, but never forget, never forget he comes to rule. That word rule means to, he's not, he's not a conquering ruler with, with warfare, but he comes to rule in our lives. That world, word rule means to have dominion and authority over. The message of peace that Jesus brings is also a message of surrender to his authority. Peace only comes to those who fully surrender to the king. And that brings us uh, to our final misconception. Maybe the the greatest misconception within the the church itself. The one that causes so many people who call themselves Christians so much trouble. We wrongly believe that we can receive Jesus Christ as Savior and not surrender to Him as Lord and King. Let me be very clear. When, When you, when I, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ... We must put our faith in all of Jesus Christ, not not just part of Jesus Christ. It's like when you get married. You're committing yourself to an entire person, an entire individual. Pardon me, but you just don't get the body. You get the mind and the will and the emotions. You get the whole person. It's an all or nothing proposition. And the same is true when we enter into relationship with Jesus Christ. It's no coincidence that that Scripture calls Him the bridegroom and us the bride. When we marry Him, we take all of Him. When you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you must also trust Him as your God and your King. You must trust Him to rule and reign in your life. You must trust Him for all He is, not just part of who He is. You are not allowed to pick and choose. I I remember, I think I've shared this before, I remember an interview with Phil Jackson, the former coach, he was the coach of the Lakers at that time, that was a long time ago, who talked about his religious beliefs and how he liked to pick and choose. Okay, I like like Jesus as the love that Jesus is teaches. I like this part from what the Buddha says. I can take this part from what uh, Muhammad says, and I put it together, and I make my religion. That's what so many people do. But Jesus doesn't offer us that. He says, you take all of me. This is pictured in the triumphal entry. Just as Jesus enters Jerusalem as both Savior and King, Jesus will only enter, Jesus will only enter into our lives as both Savior and King. Because he, can't, he cannot be less than He is. We can't ask Him, I just want part of you. Leave the other at the door. He's God. And He's King. And when we receive Him as our Savior, when we put our trust in Him, we're putting our trust in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And therefore, being at peace with God means surrendering. There are terms uh, to, to this peace. And that, those terms are your complete and absolute and total surrender to God. To His authority in your life. You become a subject of the King. And as Paul makes clear to the church in Corinth who are trying to, trying to not do this, trying to do their own thing, 
trying to receive the salvation and then do whatever they wanted. He says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And that, he's not talking about be healthy now. He's talking about obedience to God, whom you have, have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. When Jesus, the Son of God, enters your life, yes, uh, praise the Lord, He comes as your Savior. Uh, he purchases, purchases you. He becomes the, the ransom for your sin. He saves us from our sin and saves us to eternal an eternal kingdom in His presence forever. Hallelujah. But praise the Lord, He also enters as your King. He does not leave you as you are. And, and we might think we want to stay as we are, but we really don't. Because God offers so much more. Praise the Lord, He enters as your King. When He gives us uh, the amazing gift, when He enters our life, He gives us this amazing gift of, of His Spirit. He comes and He dwells within us. He establishes His kingdom in our hearts and minds. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within because He's placed His Spirit within us. And He comes to transform who we are. No longer serving other kings, including and especially ourselves, but serving, obeying, trusting, surrendering to King Jesus alone. Behold the glory of the God and King who saves. So today we've... we've abrupt conclusion. Bump. All done. No. i got a little more. Today we've beheld, uh, at least in part, I mean, this is just a few verses. This is, I mean, the whole book is about the glory of God and the glory of Christ. We've seen a little bit of that glory today. And we've dispelled some, of, uh, some common misconceptions. At least we've mentioned them, if, if not fully explored them. We've seen that Jesus is not just a good moral teacher, but God come in human flesh. We've seen that, that it's not through our works, but through trusting in His sacrificial death alone that we're saved. That He alone is Savior. There's no other way. There's no other name in heaven and earth by which we're saved, but the name of Jesus Christ. We've seen that He offers peace. He offers reconciliation with God to all who surrender to His rule. That He is King. And so the question is, now that you've beheld the shining brightness of His glory, will you come to Him? That's your part. Surrendering to Him. Will you surrender your life to Him? Will you put your trust in Him as your God, your Savior, and your King? Pray with me. Father God, we come into Your presence asking You to work in our hearts to draw us to Yourself. Lord, help us come to You. Now, if you'd like to come to Jesus Christ today for the first time, if you'd like to come back to Jesus, maybe you, you had a relationship with Him, but you've walked away, you want to come back. Or maybe you, you're, you're continuing in that relationship, but you would like it to increase, to grow stronger. You'd like to surrender completely to Him today. Just, just pray silently along with me. Lord, I confess my great need for you. I confess my sin, that I'm a sinner in need of salvation. Salvation that only your sacrificial death provides. Thank you that you were smitten for my transgressions, that my iniquity, my sin was laid upon you and not me. 
I trust in you alone as my Savior, and I surrender my life to you as my King. Take control of my life. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. I pray that by His power, I can overcome the the sin that I struggle with and seek to love and serve you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that, uh, that prayer, maybe for the first time today, then I'd encourage you to let someone know. Let me know. Uh, we at Bridges would love to help you grow in, that, uh, in your relationship with God. Chad? Stand with us.